morning, friends. I invite you to open to the book of Philippians, which is on page 982 in your pew Bible. Last week, we were in chapter 4, verses 10 and following. This week, we'll be in chapter 4, starting at verse 2, as we just heard read. We've actually rounded the corner on the Philippians sermon series, and now in the first three weeks of January, we're going to be spending some time in a series called Disciplines of Disciples. And if you're with us last year in January, we did the same sort of series, but out of the Psalms last year, and we looked at spiritual disciplines in the Psalms. Well, this year we're going to look at spiritual disciplines that we find kind of across the overarching narrative of Philippians to kind of tie that series together. This week, it's fitting as we head into prayer week next week, which you'll hear more about during the announcements, we're going to focus on prayer this week from Philippians 4. And then next week, we'll focus on the discipline of being in God's Word, and then finally, we'll look at service. And as we open the Word of God, as we always do, and as is our custom, let's pray that the Spirit who inspired this Word would illuminate it for us in a lively, powerful way today for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have breathed out every word from the mouth of God and that we have access to the word that you have spoken, not only about the things that concern us, but to us, and that you speak to us even today as we open your word and trust in your word. So be with us today as we seek to know you and grow in holiness as disciples and learn what it means to pray and communicate with Almighty God. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In 1989, 16-year-old Tim Carlton and his friend Derek Deal were, quote, Yanni-loving computer nerds messing around with a drum machine and synthesizer in their parents' garage in California. They wrote at that time, just 16 years old, a now famous, or some would say infamous, song, depending on who you ask. And the interesting thing was the tune was kind of just put in the garage for a while. It was lost for, for many, many years. Until Tem went to work in a startup in Silicon Valley, a little startup for a telecommunications company called Cisco. And at that time, the company was searching for their hold music. They got to find hold music for all their phones. And Tim offered this old synth composition that he remembered from his garage from the 80s. And Cisco was happy to accept it. And they soon adopted it as the hold music for all of their phones across the world. Now known as Opus Number One, the composition has become a worldwide cultural phenomenon, gathering hundreds of millions of streams online and countless spoof videos. And my guess is that all of us have heard this tune at one time or another while we've been grumpily on hold. Grumpy, that is, until we fall victim to the hypnotic groove of this song. If you've ever been on hold, you might have heard this song. It was used in a Super Bowl commercial. It kind of sounds like... You know what I'm talking about? It's terribly catchy. They didn't teach me that in seminary, by the way. That's all me. So often when we think of prayer, it can feel like we're on hold with heaven, sort of swaying to the sovereign groove of the staggered snare drum of opus number one, 
waiting for our request to be answered. And right when we think we're about to make progress, you know, the line starts ringing, we're about to get through, it turns out to be kind of the equivalent of almighty Alexa or a sanctified Siri. Your supplications are important to us. All lines to the almighty are currently occupied. We look forward to granting your request at some time in eternity future. Well, regardless of what we think of prayer, of the mystery that surrounds prayer, the questions that we have about how prayer works, one thing is for certain. Prayer is an essential spiritual practice to the Bible, to Jesus, to Paul, and to the entire Christian tradition. I mean, Jesus himself prays. Jesus calls us to pray and assumes that we'll pray. And as we just heard, Jesus teaches us how to pray. But it begs the question, what is prayer? As we head into prayer week, good thing to ask. And what effect does prayer have, if any, on our lives here and now, even as we wait for those prayers to be answered? Most of us, I suspect, would agree that prayer is more than simply hurling up ad hoc petitions to God as a sort of a genie in the sky waiting endlessly on hold to hold music. Well, in today's sermon, Paul tells us a little bit about prayer. And he tells us two things. First, that rejoicing, which is a kind of prayer, leads to reasonableness and unity in the Christian community. Something to think about as we enter into prayer week. Rejoicing leads to reasonableness. That's verses two through five. And then he's gonna say, Prayer leads to peace. Not only in the response that we get from God's prayer, but in the very act of praying itself. Peace, something that we're all after and all need in this life. So let's look at verses 2 through 5. Turn there again. It's 982 if you're looking for it. The passage doesn't start off straight away with prayer. The passage starts off with Paul describing something of a dispute uh, between co-workers in the ancient church. Um, Euodia and Syntyche, he says, I exhort you to agree in the Lord. Literally means to be of the same mind, to think the same thing. You might think, I've heard Paul say stuff like this before. In fact, he's been saying it all the way from the beginning of Philippians straight through. So clearly, Paul has had this dispute in the church, this disagreement, probably in mind since the beginning. Philippians 1.27, he says, stand firm in one mind, in one spirit for the work of the gospel. Philippians 2 verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord of one mind. Now, we don't know the very nature of the disagreement that we were having, but we can infer that it wasn't an issue of essential doctrine. It wasn't like a heresy, like they didn't believe the resurrection or they didn't believe Jesus was God or those sort of things. We can infer that because Paul says their names are written in the book of life, and he calls them co-workers. And when Paul wants to chastise a church, all you have to do is read 1 Corinthians, or many other places, he's not shy about doing so. When Hymenaeus and Alexander go kind of off the deep end with their faith, Paul says, quote, they've made a shipwreck of their faith in 1 Timothy. And then he says he's handed them over to Satan so that they'd learn not to blaspheme. Nothing like that is happening here in Philippians. 
Probably what it is is some sort of a disagreement of personality or preference. We have those kind of disagreements all the time. Very rarely, if you have a fight with your spouse or one of your friends, it's on the ontological, metaphysical nature of the Trinity. Those aren't like dinnertime fights that we have. In the church, what could it be? Simple stuff like we disagree on views of baptism or the spiritual gifts. I know, the favorite evangelical one in America, maybe Udiah was a Calvinist and Syntyche was an Arminian. One liked Hillsong and the other only swore by hymns. One loved the NIV Bible translation and the other would scoff every time the NIV was brought up. Ha, the NIV, the not inspired version. (laughs) I like the NIV. Whatever it was, it was a non-essential issue. However, that didn't make it a non-issue. These these disagreements, these disputes on preferences and personality styles and secondary issues, right? They splinter relationships if they're left unattended to. They can even split churches and steal our joy. And so Paul begins his discussion of prayer by saying, look, prayer is not just sort of hurling up things to God in this sort of individualistic lane on our own. Prayer is a way to pursue reasonableness. What he's going to say in our first point here is that reasonableness and unity come through rejoicing. But what doesn't Paul do? Let's look at two things he doesn't do first. Paul does not respond to issues in the church by being a bully. He doesn't shame people. He doesn't force everyone into a rigid uniformity. One interpreter from the Middle Ages quoted a cultural proverb that still makes sense today. Sometimes we think like this, we must howl like wolves when we're among the wolves, because those who act like sheep will quickly be devoured by the wolves. But for the Christian, of course, that's a problem. We sometimes feel like the only way to compete in the world is to adopt the way of the wolf, devour or be devoured. But as Christians, we're never called to be weekday, workday wolves and weekend sheep. We're called to be sheep among the wolves every day. And that is the metric of good, healthy, growing discipleship. Because a sheep who puts on wolf's clothing during the week to make it in the world is likely to eventually become a wolf in sheep's clothing on the weekend at worship. The bewitching power of sin is not something that we're meant to don as an occasional accessory. It will transform you into its image, even as you think you're using it to accomplish and even try to heal problems. Paul's not aggressive. He's not a bully. He's also not someone who buries the issue or sweeps it under the rug, creating a sort of breeding ground for bigger problems, but it's leaving it, not dealing with it, conflict averse. Because as we know, unresolved conflict and pent-up passive aggression, that's not good either. Paul doesn't do that. He openly addresses it. Paul doesn't use what I call the, the dreaded insult by ellipsis. You know what I mean by that? This is the ultimate passive aggressive pout expressed through punctuation. If you write someone on the phone, you say, you know, we were gonna go to the beach, let's just go swimming at my house. It's easier, we don't have to drive so far. And then they write you back as their response, sure, if that's what you want to do, I'm good with it, I guess, dot, 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 right? Which is not how ellipsis is meant to be used anyway. 
It's improper grammar. We use it as a form of passive aggression to say, I really would rather go to the beach, right? Paul doesn't do that. He's not aggressive. He's not passive aggressive. What he does is call the church into a prayerful, open, courteous, reasonable agreement, and he says he does this in the Lord, as always with Paul. He doesn't call us to a behavior that is not empowered by God to carry out what he calls us to. Look how it's phrased. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But what book bookends that on either side? Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. In the end of verse 5, the Lord is near. Paul does not call on us to rely on our own strength to heal problems and to address them in a reasonable way. He calls us to dig into the presence and power of God that's with us as we pray to cultivate healthy community in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, and indeed in our church. Paul instructs us to rejoice our way to reasonableness, not to be reasonable and then at some point praise God and rejoice. And you might think, and you say, rejoicing, that's not a form of prayer, but it is. The word simply means to be glad in the Lord. And Paul says here that to be glad in the Lord is how we become reasonable. And so it's worth noting that prayer, we so often think of prayer as only petitionary. Whatever needs I have, those are what I lift up. It is that, but it's so much more. If you read the Psalms, so many times in the Psalms, what we find is not petitions, but the praise of God for who he is. The glory of God who created all things, every atom of every piece of matter that's every, existed in every galaxy. We praise God for that. For the God who saves us, who brought us from darkness into light. We praise God for that. And so by first fixing our eyes on God rather than becoming fixated on the circumstances that are frustrating us and the people that are frustrating us and adopting their ethos to spit it back at them and fight fire with fire. No, no, no. Paul says, when you rejoice in the beauty and the perfection and the holiness of God, that starts to reframe the way you live and think of other people who are made in the very image of that God. The principle is this. We can't expect to rightly relate to others unless we're first rightly relating to God. And when we rightly relate to God, through rejoicing in God, the result is a reasonable, courteous disposition that has the courage to address problems, not as aggressors or passive aggressors, but as peacemakers, which is what Jesus calls us to be. But that's not it. It's, it's not just that rejoicing leads to reasonableness, rejoicing as the praise of God. No, no, it's also that prayer is the path to peace, something we all desperately need and are inheritors of in the gospel. Let's look at verses 6 through 7. Peace through prayer. Notice the sequence here. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you catch the sequence between verse 6 and 7? Prayer results 
in peace, quite apart from everything that prayer does in giving us the things we ask for, sometimes surprisingly so, prayer itself brings us into the domain, the realm, and the power of God's presence and God's peace. Prayer is powerful. Paul says it's a peace that surpasses understanding, meaning it isn't the peace that we would default in our own normal, everyday disposition. Instead, we would lean into the learned patterns of our own depravity and try to solve our problems that way. No, no, no. Paul says prayer leads us into a place of peace. And so we must ask two questions at this point, two aspects of this verse. The first has to do with wondering, what does Paul mean by talking about anxiety and peace? Anxiety and peace. We're going to look at that and how it relates to prayer. And the second thing we'll ask is, how? He keeps saying, you can do this because the Lord is near you. You can do this because the Lord is with you, but how? I don't see Jesus physically present here. How is the Lord near us? We're going to talk about that when it relates to prayer. Let's start with anxiety and peace. You know, in a culture in which recent statistics estimate that some 19% of American adults struggle with anxiety disorders every year, that's around 40 million adult Americans, we have to be really careful that we don't misread what Paul is saying and promising here. You know, prayer for Paul is not an alternative to holistic health. It's not an alternative to self-care and health care, including mental health. Prayer plays a major role. I mean, we're talking about union with God and communication with God Almighty. Prayer plays a major role in our overall well-being as Christians, but the results of prayer often work through other means which God orchestrates according to his providence to answer those prayers. Prayer doesn't operate sort of in its own lane. You know, Christian prayer is not pseudo-sorcery. It's not incantations and earthen spirituality. Rather, prayer, Christian prayer, is communicating with God, surrendering our whole selves to God's sovereign governance over all things in our life. And Paul says when we do that, when we submit ourselves to God's overarching sovereignty in all things in our lives, then we have a peace that surpasses understanding that cannot be gotten at through any self-help book or any other means. It really is unique to the Christian faith. But in Philippians 4, we must read anxiety and peace, not functioning first and foremost in 21st century America, but in the first century AD. And in that context, Anxiety and peace are contrasted to talk about Paul's exhortation towards unity in Christ. Peace in the New Testament is not primarily what we mean by peace, with these really cool apps that play like water noises and stuff, right? It's a sublime emotional state, just like the ultimate sense of being chill or zen or tranquil. It's not the peace achieved by peppermint tea and burning essential oils, both of which I love. It's not the total resolution of all perceived stress in my life and the elimination entirely of all psychological anxiety. No, no. These things will probably be positively impacted by a life of prayer. God will work on these things. His peace is with you. It will not leave you if you're a Christian. But these things will always likely be 
as you probably suspect, a thorn in our side because they are the residual effects of the fall on body, embodied existence. And so this means, friends, that our anxiety is real. The struggle is real. And the response of Paul is not a trite truism of a bumper sticker, just kind of sweep anxiety and sin and stress under the rug. But instead, Paul points us through prayer to the power and presence of God among us. You see, instead of stresslessness, instead of emotional tranquility, peace in the New Testament, which comes through prayer, refers primarily to the ceasing of sin's hostile power that separates us from God. The ceasing of sin's hostile power. And how does it cease? It tells us that it ceased through the cross of Jesus Christ. Peace, in other words, is another way of saying reconciliation. As Paul says in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus Christ has made peace. Yes, peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Whatever we're feeling at any given moment will ebb and flow, but the peace of Jesus Christ will stand firm forever. There is nothing that can assault it. There is nothing that can bring it down. There is nothing that can change it. It is your inheritance in the gospel, whether you feel it at any given time or not. There will never be a time when you stand as a Christian at enmity with God because Jesus Christ took that upon himself on the cross and defeated it in victory in the resurrection. That is the Christian faith. And so whether you feel stressed or anxious is a real thing and a real struggle. But know this, Christian, that if you are in Jesus Christ, he will uphold you by his own power and presence, whatever that looks like on any given day in any given circumstance. His peace cannot be defeated. The second point I want to make here is how exactly is Christ present with us? We might say, okay, Paul, you're writing scripture, you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'll give you that. You keep saying Christ is near us, verse 5. You keep saying Christ is with us, verse 9. But how? How does Christ guard and guide our minds and hearts if he's not physically here? And the teaching of Christianity in Holy Scripture, the teaching of Christianity across 2,000 years of history is that Jesus Christ is present powerfully through his word by his spirit. He's not an absent God. He's a really, truly present God in word and in sacrament through his spirit. But when it comes to prayer, right, we often envision ourselves as the initiators of the conversation. We're the ones asking him for things. We're the ones always making requests. It starts with us. He's the one putting us on hold. We forget though, right? when we think about the way that God is present, that God is actually the one who started the conversation. God was actually the first one to speak. God still speaks to us by his spirit through his word as if he were right here with us because he is. He speaks to us in his incarnate word, Jesus, and in his infallible word written, the Bible. And this means, friends, that God's word is not merely something passive, a monologue to be observed or to archive in a museum. 
but it is something to be actively engaged as in a dialogue. It's not just an artifact from antiquity that we study. No, no, no. This is the word of God as a prompt. Your prayer is a response to the word that he first spoke. Your prayer is not the first word. His word is the first word. He gives the prompts. Are you speaking back according to the prompts? Are we operating in some other lane where we go around the prompts of God? We go around the cues of Scripture and the routes of Scripture that lead us to the peace of God in prayer, that give us God's will in Holy Scripture, that help us to pray in ways that bring God's presence even among us? Are we acting as though we have another way to get to God that starts with me rather than Him? Scripture is not something just to be studied. It is something to be prayed. You know, in contemporary culture, if we call or text someone and we don't get an answer after some time, we call that ghosting. And we often wonder, why is God ghosting me? But it might be, it might be that we're ghosting God. You ever think about that? Either by infrequently praying or never, or by attempting to respond to God in this other lane, by our own way, ignoring what he said. You ever been in one of those conversations where someone's listening to you talk, but you know they're not really listening? What are they doing? They're waiting for you to stop so that they can talk. Nobody likes when that happens. And sometimes the way we pray can inadvertently be like that. But it need not be like that. Maybe God's the one who's on hold waiting for us to frame our prayers. The old Opus 1 song playing in his ear. No, no, no. Prayer is not meant to be that way. Prayer is meant to respond to the words and prompts of God. How can we do that? Well, as Anglicans, we have a lot of great tradition, a tradition steeped in the Word of God. And one of the ways is just to pray the Word of God. We read the Word of God all the time. We study the Word of God all the time. But our liturgy, our Book of Common Prayer, and I'll put links to all the free stuff in my sermon notes if you want to get some of those things. You can get free apps for all this. What the Book of Common Prayer is, is Scripture arranged for worship. Scripture, 2,000 years of riches and resources for prayer so that we don't have to go it alone in our own lane according to our own cues, according to our own prompts. One of the ways you can do this is if you're reading in the Psalm, say you're in Psalm 23, you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now you can go do a word study on shepherd and find all the uses of shepherd in the Bible. That's good. But another thing you can do is let that word speak to you, God, and then you respond in your prayer shaped by that word. You see how that works? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Lead me, Lord, beside still waters in this area of my life, in that area. And so what you're doing then is following the cues that God has prompted when he first spoke to you. He's the God who takes initiative and is present with you just as if he were sitting right beside you. Think these things, says Paul. Think these things. But he doesn't stop there. He also says practice these things. And through that practice comes a promise from Paul that not only will God's peace be with you, but the God of peace. You see that in verse 9? He flips it around. The God of peace himself will be with you. You know, you realize what we're saying there. Almighty God 
who knew you from when you're, before you're in the womb, who knows all things, who's all powerful, who's all good, is with you. The times that I pray that I feel most profound are the times when I feel alone. When I first flew here to visit, it was during the first Omicron wave, and uh, Australia had just opened up. So they let me out of the country. I was like, good, I really want to go to the false church. The live stream is good if you're on the live stream, hello. But it's much better to be here in person, so come on down. So I came over from Australia. I ended up in this great hotel room that the church put me up in, so gracious, everyone was nice to me. And I was alone in this hotel room in the middle of the night. I said this horrible thought. I had this, it's just a terrible thing. Um, maybe it's because I'm weak. I don't know. I had this thought like, I'm not going to be able to see my family for months. Because Australia had closed the border and they said, if you have any hint of COVID, you can't come in. And it's usually, you have to get a PCR test. You can't come in for months. So I sat there excited to be here in the hotel room alone. I just started weeping because I thought I'm not going to see my family. I'm not going to, I might, wow, oh, man, I shouldn't have come, you know. And I, and I didn't cry at that time. God, please keep me from getting sick or I need these other things. The only thing I could think to say was, God, be with me. I feel alone. I feel alone. Isn't that the worst feeling to feel? And here's the thing, of the many things you will feel at the worst moments of your life, including the last moments of your life, when maybe you don't have words to speak, Jesus Christ not being there will not be one of the possibilities. Jesus Christ's presence with you by his word and by his spirit will never depart from you, ever, if you're in Christ. He will bless you, which is what we talked about last week. He will keep you forever. He'll keep you forever. And so, whatever you think in those moments, however alone you feel, you are not alone, you are not abandoned, God Almighty is in the midst of you, and your prayer, which sometimes you can barely get out, is not a waiting for something in the future. The presence and peace of God is a bomb of healing to your soul right now, right in that moment, forevermore. Well, let us pray, and I'll pray using the words of St. John Chrysostom, which is from our prayer book. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. You will grant their requests. And so fulfill now, O oh Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come, life everlasting. Amen. Amen.